the number one way to be successful is to not die. The precondition for living is not experiencing death, both like literally and metaphorically. And so eliminating or severely reducing that possibility is very valuable because it allows you to continue to play the game, right? If you can like mitigate that sort of sequencing thing. So I think that's where it gets, people get tripped up or it's not exactly intuitive. They're like, oh, this thing is very unlikely to happen. This week, I'm sharing part of my conversation with Taylor Pearson, who is an entrepreneur, an investor, and the author of The End of Jobs. So in this part, you're going to hear us talking about how AI can start to impact our career choices. We talk about the future of work. We talk about the concept of ergodicity. We talk about his investing strategy and how he considers tail risks. And then finally, you're going to hear us talking about the Helsinki bus station theory. So this was a really fun episode. You can get the full show notes the transcript and read my newsletter at theknowledge.io. You can find Taylor online on Twitter at TaylorPearsonMe and in his newsletter, The Interesting Times. Now, if you love this episode, please do share it with a friend and don't forget to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps us tremendously to find other listeners just like you. Do you think AI changes much of what you were previously thinking about? I think of it in two ways. So one is going back to the, the Turkey problem. There's a potential way in which, you know, people give advice. Oh, here's what you should do. Here's the fields you should go into, et cetera. Loads of people are still, I think there was definitely a much bigger movement at one point of getting people into tech and saying, I remember people saying on the internet, you know, plumbers are going to be dead. All these other careers will die out and everyone needs to start coding, you know, code or die or whatever it was. And the irony is, it seems like that's probably one of the things AI is going to be best at is (laughs) completely replacing a bunch of, especially the junior coders. And actually, I think this ties to a framework I've heard you mention, which is something along the lines of a simple work, complicated work, and then complex work, where complicated is, I can't remember the precise words that you used, but complex work is kind of like heuristic work where it's not so much just getting good at a certain skill set, but it's more thinking in an abstract way. And that seems to be what will survive. Whereas if you're doing something rote, something that can be taught, something that can be you know, you can essentially just train an AI to do, hey, coding has a language. If it has a language similar to chess, chess has a fixed number of moves. If you can teach someone to do that, then you can teach an AI to do it. And maybe you don't have it as a job in the same way. And perhaps people will only do some of these things for entertainment purposes. Yeah, I think the simple, complicated, complex is a good way to talk about it. So the idea is sort of a simple job or a simple system is something that can be broken down into like very clear, discrete steps. So like putting together a Lego set, right? Like you open the instruction manual, there's 42 steps of where you put the blocks on a certain Legos. You follow the steps. If you do it correctly, it looks like whatever in the boat or whatever it's designed to be. A complicated thing is something that tends to require some level of like expertise and experience. So I would say like, you know, like a mechanic, for example, right? It's like you can try and fix your car, just like following some instructions on YouTube, but like for a number of things, you probably want someone with some expertise that can go like, well, if you take that off first, the bolt could fall down here and that causes this thing to explode, right? Like you need some sort of expertise, but Ultimately, like there's a number of good enough answers, right? In a simple system, there's a correct answer. There's one best solution. In a complicated system, there's a, a discrete set of good answers, right? If your car is broken in a particular way, maybe there's three different ways you could fix it. 
that are ones more expensive, but maybe last longer or whatever. A complex system is one in which you have emergent properties and there is no discrete set of good answers that it's constantly evolving. So like sort of distinction between complicated and complex. The example I like is like the difference between like repairing a car and repairing a horse, right? So a car is a set of discrete parts, right? So you can take the tires off the car, put a new set of tires on. If you take the liver out of the horse, you cannot put the liver back in the horse, right? It all works together. It's all integrated. You know, once you take the liver out, you take the heart out, the horse is no longer functional. It all requires a sort of integrated system. I think it's an interesting way to think about work, right? Like you can say certain type of work, a given role or a given task that someone's doing, right? Like there are certain things I do on a daily basis that are simple things, right? It's four steps, whatever, making my coffee in the morning. Like it's four discrete steps. There's a correct way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. There's also complicated things I do that are, you know, slightly more whatever. And then there's also complex things I do that there's not a clear right answer. And it's hard to do. And sort of the way I talked about it in the book is, you know, if you think of these things sort of as a pyramid, there are these two kinds of forces. One is globalization. I use the word machines. I debate on this a lot about, but like technology more broadly, I would sort of like lump AI into this thing. But these two forces of sort of globalization and machines that are kind of eating their way up the stack, right? And so like a lot of maybe the early stages of globalization was a lot of this simple work that got eaten by one of those two things effectively, right? That things got outsourced, they got moved overseas for a lot of people in developed countries, manufacturing from the US to China, kind of that classical stuff, or it got automated. I did a tour of the Toyota production plant in San Antonio, Texas, right? And it's like, there's got about a lot of big machines, right? There's people there that are doing stuff as well. And like the people are important, they've automated a lot of that, like how that sort of production works. And so my thesis around, I think I might have used the term AI. I certainly wasn't like knowledgeable about AI to like make any sort of interesting predictions. But like to me, it's like a part of that machine group that is just like eating up that stack, right? So now I think a lot of things, software did a lot of simple things, right? Like if you can write a deterministic, if you can write a set of steps for this thing, the software can do those steps in a deterministic way. And AI, I think, is when it starts to get into that complicated stuff, right? That you can have things that require certain expertise and heuristic decision-making. And, you know, it seems plausible that the trajectory that AI is on will get to where it can do that kind of work, right? Like, I guess my sort of mental model for AI is like, it can like let anyone be mediocre at anything. You know, if you've seen like AI write a history paper or whatever, like it writes a pretty good freshman, sophomore level history paper of the impact of Napoleon on Russian culture or whatever, right? Like it's like a pretty decent attempt at that, but it's not like really good, right? Like I don't like, I don't like have ChatGPT write me an essay on like, right, you know, something and like think like, oh, this is like really not, it's like, it's fine. It would probably get you, I don't know, a B or a C if you like turned it in and your teacher didn't know know what it was or whatever. So I guess that's the way, you know, when I talk about in the book, like becoming more entrepreneurial, like I think another way of saying that is like getting better at dealing with complex environments, emerging, things are changing fast. How do you do that kind of work? Because that is the thing that is, that's what's scarce, right? That's what's hard to do for people. That's what's hard to do for machines. And so getting good at that is making yourself more valuable, I think, in the long run. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the other part that links to what you were saying that I think is interesting is, so Naval Ravikant has, I think at one point, essentially the quote from him is something like, there's two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. And I think part of what made the internet age really great is that it unbundled so many things. 
right? In order to make money and for a business to be successful, it no longer needed to corner a market. You can make money, just like you were saying, in loads of niche ways. You could have your podcast in one corner of the world, which is just about one particular US football team or college football team. And you could have your business that sells mid-century modern cat furniture like you could do all of these very niche things because the internet allows you to find all of the people distributed around the world that make money doing that thing and i think i heard someone else say something similar today but i think he was just commenting on when people talk on the internet about how okay starting an e-commerce business you can make millions and things like that a lot of people think it's a scam and a lot of people i mean there's definitely plenty of scams so i'm not saying there's no scams but i think the point is when you hear about okay all of these e-commerce businesses that are making seven eight nine figures it seems incredible but it's because okay so i just finished reading a book called flatland i'm not sure if you've come across it it's really good i'd highly recommend it it's a it's an old book and it's a bit weird it's basically just about a world of a flat world that is two-dimensional and someone comes from a three-dimensional world into the two-dimensional world and explains to someone in that two-dimensional world that there are other dimensions so they take them up into the three-dimensional world and they're like whoa you guys have spheres here because in their world everything is just flat right so things are just straight lines or things have points but you can't really figure out that they're points because if you are actually flat then you don't know how many sides a shape has anyway it gets a bit complex but the point is it just made me think of that where when you think of the internet what that allows you to do is go up another level because when you're in flat land and you can only see the world in one way you think of things as local and so when someone explains a business that makes a lot of money you're thinking oh like within this local sphere but actually the internet is up a level and you can go down into you know japan and china and you can make money in all places in the world and so it's actually super easy to have a seven-figure business because it's so distributed like it's not in one place if it was in one place it'd be a very different type of business but because you're able to come up into 3d land you can make money from all around the world and it's very different so i went off on a bit of a tangent there but bringing it back to ai the thought that i had was there's a sense in which ai kind of rebundles things because before for example you know you would go to google to search for text you would go here to read something you go to your library or you'll you'll go to blogs or research papers or wherever then you go somewhere else to create images like you would be multimodal in how you approached life how you approached research how you approached learning how you approached entertainment and there's a potential future where a lot of these things just coalesce and actually open ai or choose your tool of choice they begin to aggregate a bunch of different services. And I think you're already starting to see that there's some AI tools that could generate characters, they can generate images, they can generate potential movies. And I wonder what happens when you no longer need to go to different websites, to different places to see what you need to see. Like if you could just type and the entire film was generated on your laptop, like within the same screen, here's a film that you can watch you know, what does that do to, I don't know, to creativity, to entertainment, to books? So the things that you could be doing as an entrepreneur, I wonder how much of that gets eaten up by the AI. So all of that's on one side. And then on the other side is this idea that a lot of this comes at the price of our cognition. And I wonder what happens when, if you never need to, like, I think we've already lost one set of skills, which was, for example, mental maths. You don't need to learn to do mental maths if you have a calculator. And then what you currently use a calculator to do, if you just ask ChatGPT, what is this? What's the percentage of this? It's just going to tell you. You don't even need to learn that. And in a similar way, at least 
in our generation, you still have to do some research. Maybe you could use the internet for some of that research, but you don't have to go to the library and learn how to look for books. You could maybe do some research on the internet. You can look for web pages. What happens when you no longer need to learn to look for web pages? All you have to do is just type a search. So all of these different functions just coalesce into search, search function and just being able to think of what you want is all that you need <laughs> to be able to produce a vast amount of things. So I just wanted to know what you thought of the coming together of all of those ideas. My wife and I like those, like, like every year Netflix has like five, like sort of C grade Christmas rom-com movies where like the script feels like AI generated. Like it's not AI generated. It could totally, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. the same cliche plot line where you can like predict the thing or whatever. So whoever's producing those is screwed because that for sure can be turned over to AI. Yeah. The Hallmark. I've, I've seen that complex. movie five times every year. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Hallmark, Hallmark better have some good AI engineers because, yeah, someone is coming for them. I think that's interesting. And I was, you're talking about like the flatland thing. And I, I like the bundling and unbundling framing because like it captures a sense in which like nothing is novel, right? Or like we're just like recapitulating certain things. So it's like in a certain sense, I think about it's not that there's no local businesses on the internet. It's that the way you define local is different. Like local might mean a forum or a subreddit, right? Like that's the thing that happened. Like in the way someone would be well regarded in their local community of, you know, 5,000 people that was like in their neighborhood because they were a good plumber, right? That same phenomenon exists on the internet. It's just like you're a common poster on whatever the personal finance subreddit and you have helpful things to say about, you know, how people should do their budgeting. And you're a trusted and valuable member of that community. And that gives you access to certain opportunities that people will trust you and whatever. And then you have an online course that you sell about how to, you know, get your budget right, or you do some consulting or you write a book or whatever. So I guess I have that like same intuition about the AI thing is like, it's just going to change sort of the definition of like what local means or like how that works. Like instead of being local, you know, I think about like the cat furniture business. I tried to, I tried to draw this image at one point. Maybe I could see if I could get an AI image of like, instead of like New York City, you have Amazon, right? And like you live on the outskirts of Amazon and you're on the border of like Amazon and Google, right? And like that's how people, you know, people find you through those two channels. And like that's the local place that you occupy on the internet. And, you know, instead of selling plumbing, you're selling you know, so you're plumbers on cat furniture or sort of whatever it is. I guess that's the intuition I have that like it bundles and unbundles in a different way. But yeah, I don't know, right? And I think like maybe a, a good answer to your question, like what would I change about the book now is I think I like, I like probably overestimated the extent to which the internet would like remain like somewhat decentralized or like somewhat distributed. And I think, right, instead of we've ended up with a bit more of like this walled garden phenomenon, you know, like if you if like sci-fi, there's a book by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash. It was like, I think he coined the term metaverse in that book. It's like from the nineties. It sort of like imagines this future where it's, it's like Ready Player One. If anyone's read that book, it's like sort of a conceptually similar book. It like imagines this future of like nation states have kind of collapsed and you kind of have this like re-feudalization. And so I think, I think the protagonist lives in, I think it's called like Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, like now encompasses like the West Coast of the U.S., and like Vancouver, Canada, right? That's this sort of like new jurisdiction of like greater Hong Kong. You know, I, don't know, I just thought that was like such an interesting concept, right? It's like, we're just redrawing the lines here. We're re sort of doing it. That's my intuition about AI is like, it just sort of like redraws the lines in a different way. And like, maybe it is something that's like a lot more centralized, right? Like maybe there's huge economies of scale to it because access to certain data sets, chip production, 
becomes, you know, you can't make a good AI model without using one of four players, you know, OpenAI, Google, Facebook, without having access to one of these four sort of players. And that, you know, yeah, you end up in some different sort of jurisdiction. So that was a long one to answer. I'm not sure, like, really got to the heart of your question. But the unbundling, bundling seems directionally correct way to think about it. Yeah. Okay. Tying this slightly back to what we talked about before, do you think it changes the heuristics that people might have? So, you know, we talk about, like, navigating with compasses or gyroscopes and the, the turkey problem of people typically may have had heuristics of, this is the part that you go on, here is how you get a career, here's how you get a job. Do you think it changes anything about that process of how people find what kind of things to work on. So for example, just using the example we just gave, maybe you don't think about, you know, going and working at Hallmark right now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you think of a different company or a different industry to work in. Do you think it changes any of that at all? Or like any mental models that people might have for picking a career or picking a field? That's, I'm not sure I have a good answer. To that. I think, I think it's certainly worth thinking about Douglas Adams, the author of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, which is one of my favorite fiction series. He has like a great quote or something like everything that exists in the world when you're born is normal and the way the world should be. Everything that's invented between the time you're zero and 35 is new and exciting and you could build a career in. And everything that comes into the world after you're 35 is unnatural and against the way things should be and should be stopped or whatever. And, you know, like, there's a lot of truth to that observation. Yeah, I think, like, it's certainly worth thinking about like what extrapolate the AI thing outwards and like what is that? What does that look like? Like, I, I mean, I, I think one thing is like to our conversation earlier about like what is safe and what is not safe, right? Like you have certain careers that look safe or, you know, may look safe to most people now that in fact aren't super safe, right? Because, you know, you're having this sort of changing landscape of what is valuable and like how the economy is structured. But I guess I think about the same ones I mentioned earlier. It's sort of like the first wave of machines, technology, globalization, sort of ate away at the third, the simple type of work. Like I think AI, like it starts to eat away at the more complicated. They're like a junior coder is a good example, right? Or there's probably like lots of like junior legal professions, right? We think of like sort of mid-level or junior levels in like a lot of fields where like it's not as defensible as it used to be, right? Like, you know, I moved into like a older house and I'm like learning about home maintenance and all this kind of stuff. And like ChatGPT is awesome for that, right? Like I can get to like a three out of 10 plumber knowledge, like pretty fast, does that make me a good plumber? No. Like, do you know, I mean, I'm like qualified to do something, but like, I can get a basic understanding. I can get to like mediocre at something like a lot faster than I used to be. You know, that like first half of the learning curve, I think is a lot faster, but yeah, I'm not sure it like affects that much on the second half of the learning. You know what I mean? Like being truly exceptional at something feels as or more valuable as it used to. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, I'm very glad that we talked through this part because it's also helped me to solidify some of my thoughts on certain things. I think that some of the stickiest jobs will also be the ones with the highest risk asymmetry. Literally just came off the back of what you were saying. Where, okay, so thinking about law specifically, from when I worked in law, people were already talking about, this is before we were talking about AI, but tech was already starting to be incorporated into law. And there were already these murmurings that, oh my gosh, you know, some lawyers might be replaced by technology. And that seemed like nonsense to me because, and my reason why has changed from now, but at the time it was because I worked at a firm where, I mean, we'd had a merger with a US firm, so now it was a much bigger firm, but the original version of that firm, we had people that I worked with where, so there was one guy, I think he was almost 80 or something. And he had been a trainee when the first so that's like a first or second year associate when the first Star Wars film came out. And the person that he worked with, that he trained under, was also still at the firm. 
And the person that he trained was also still at the front. Like you have like three generations of really old people that all <laughs> one, one trained the next all at the same firm. And when they were first and second year associates, they didn't have email. There were no email. There were no computers. There were no typewriters. Secretaries used to write by hand what a partner dictated to them. So first of all, imagine how hard that job was. And then, <laughs> and then trying to get everyone trained on email or, or trained on typewriters first and then trained on email. And you think at some point, oh, you know, you're not going to need all these secretaries. People are worrying about what's going to happen to trainees because, for example, I think trainees used to have to like write things out by hand or, or to copy documents. They would just type them out again. And that was how you made extra copies of documents that you needed to take with you. And you would think, oh, we're not going to need all these trainings. And now before you would have like two or three. Now you have dozens. The same in the US, you have summer associates and you have first and second year associates. You have so many more of them because there's actually way more work for them to do. But I think the reason my thinking has changed, I still come to the same or similar conclusion was just off the back of what you were saying, where I think it's just a function of risk. And it's the same reason right now people are still not accepting self-driving cars. If you drive your car and you kill someone, you can say sorry. And it's like, oh, you know, at least there was a human that you can either forgive or hate for the rest of your life. If an AI is driving a car and kills your child, what do you do? Like the anger that you have, you have nowhere to direct it. And I think that's a big reason why people hate it. And so it's the asymmetry function there where if the risk could involve AI killing someone, people are not necessarily going to be on board. And similarly with law, if the risk is your company is going to lose millions because this AI didn't think to check this other thing, good grief. Like the, the lawsuit for the first, you know, law firm that tries to employ AI on something serious is going to be astronomical. I can't imagine being the partner that decides, Oh yeah, we're going to take this risk, especially on something serious. And so I wonder how, how long it will take for some of these things to be sticky. Whereas if the risk like plumbing, Hey, I can just say what's going to happen. The risk is maybe I can't use the toilet for a, a little while. <laughs> you know, the risk is, okay, now I have to call a real plumber to come and do the thing that I just messed up. I made it even worse. So I think that's how some people might do the maths. I use ChatGPT for writing stuff. And I find it's just like, it, to your point about the bundling, unbund like there's just certain things. I get really good at like analogies, like helping. I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain this concept, like throw out some analogies for me or like, I was trying to do something with like a sports metaphor and I was like going back and forth with it, trying to come. And it was like great at that. But yes, it's certainly like, I would never use it for something where I need to be like 99% confident, right? Like something where I'm at with where 70% accuracy is sufficient. Great. That's fine. Like I'm going to do some sort of like brainstorming exercise, but I, I just, yeah, about law for sure. It's like I wouldn't, I do, I have a chat GPT bot that like have a little prompt in there for it to be a lawyer or whatever. And like, I'll talk to it or whatever. And it actually is, it is useful for like me coming up, like before I have a call with a lawyer, I will come up with the, you know what I mean? Like I'll use it to like come up with the questions and get like be mediocre, you know, be three out of 10 or whatever to like be able to participate in that call. I wouldn't like make a major financial decision on the basis of that thing. Hey, we'll get back to the episode in just one moment, but I wanted to tell you very quickly about my newsletter. I started sharing everything I was learning online and a few thousand people came along for the ride. I send three regular emails. Brainwave fortnightly on a Tuesday, which is about the intersection between technology, philosophy, and psychology. Then every week on a Thursday, I send revelations, and that's about creativity and productivity. And then finally, every other weekend, I send Wayfinder, and that's about decision-making. 
So people in the audience actually send me really tough problems that they're working through, and I help to deconstruct them using mental models and decision-making frameworks. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can join me and over 20,000 incredibly driven people at theknowledge.io. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, exactly. I think same. And I don't want this to turn into, you know, we're just talking about law. Here is one maybe to connect to your investing, which is probably one of the, the main things that you do now running the mutiny fund. But there's an obvious tail risk that people talk a lot about with AI, which is that it's going to come and kill everyone. And so maybe not specifically to talk about that, but I would love to know how you think about tail risks in general. Cause I've heard you talk a little bit about the way that you do investments, but actually, you know, maybe taking a step back from that, why would you even do investments by yourself? Why would you invest? There is a safe way potentially to do money where you just spread the risk out in a non ergodic way across the entire market. And you just say, Hey, I'm just going to put all my money in ETFs. Why would you choose to do anything more complicated than that? Yeah. So I think you've mentioned ergodicity a couple of times, so maybe it's worth like talking about that because I think that sort of plays into what we're talking about with the career stuff and also the sort of investing stuff. So ergodicity is a term from physics, but the basic idea of ergodicity is when you have two scenarios. So one is, I'm going to use my own terms, not necessarily technical terms, but what you call like an ensemble average. And one is we'd have what's like called like a time average. So you can think about it, you know, does one person doing a repeated action over time get the same outcome as many people doing one action, right? So in the case, if you flip a coin, you have a hundred people flip one coin and you count how many heads and tails there are, you have one person flip a coin a hundred times. Statistically, it's going to work out to be the same distribution, right? You're going to have the same thing. If you have a scenario where the fun example is Russian roulette, if you have six people play Russian roulette once, as opposed to one person playing Russian roulette six times, you get a very different outcome, right? If six people play once, one person loses, five people win, and five people are very happy. If one person plays six times in a row, they're guaranteed to lose eventually. So in a not necessarily, you know, a situation where the ensemble and the time average or path are not the same is said to be non-ergotic. And so it's interesting with respect to like careers and technology and paths and stuff, right? Because it's like, just because it worked for someone else at another point in time doesn't necessarily mean it will work for you now, right? It depends what path and what trajectory you're on. But then I think also very interesting in a finance and investing context, because you as an individual do not get the average returns of the market. You get what you get based on the path that you're on. So if you have a child that gets sick, if you need to support a parent, if you have you get laid off, if you want to start a business, right? You have all these sort of inflows and outflows that matter, you know, impact the trajectory. So like, you know, one example I give of this is like the Dow Jones Industrial Index from 1966 to 1997 returned on average 8% a year, but it did that in two very different ways. So the first part of that period, not remember these dates exactly, but let's call it like 66 to 82, it was basically flat. There were no returns. And for the second part of that period, let's call it 82 to 97, it had 15% a year returns, right? So it had 8% on average over this 30 year period. But the trajectory of those really matters, right? So if you are 65 years old and you retire at the start of that time period, you are drawing down that whole period, right? You're sort of spending your money. And so you don't get the average returns because by the time the sort of the strong period of returns comes in, you've already withdrawn a lot of your wealth. If you do the inverse scenario, you know, you get strong returns. So the, I, don't, I don't remember these numbers off head, but are off the top of my head, but something like, a, you know, let's say a couple that retires with $3 million and they're planning to spend $180,000 a year in their retirement. If they get that bad period first, they go broke after like 12 or 13 years, right? Because their investments aren't appreciating and they're just drawing down on it. If they get the good period first, they get the strong returns. 
their retirement account grows a ton, right? They're only withdrawing a portion of it and it's going up 15%. You know, it peaks at 12 million and their retirement savings last them for 70 years or something. And so sort of central to the way I think about investing is like, we don't know the future path of returns, right? Like we don't know what the trajectory of those are. We don't even know the average, but even if we did know the average, it's not enough to know the average. You also need to know sort of the sequence and the path. So I think this is interesting and relevant to most people in the sense that a lot of times when people get financial advice, they talk about, oh, you know, the stock market returns 7% on average, which is a correct statement. That's a roughly true statement from the historical data I've seen. One of the things is that, you know, you can drown in a river that's two feet deep on average, right? If it's shallow along most of it and has one very deep channel, you can still drown in the channel. So, you know, you can withdraw 4% a year from an investment strategy that earns 8% a year on average and still go broke. Right, because it depends on the trajectory, the path, and sort of what those investment returns are. So that's kind of the central idea I've been interested in, and sort of I think how that applies is I think a lot of investing advice, investment education doesn't tend to make that delineation about like path and ensemble, or like averages can be deceiving in that sense. And so, sort of part of my philosophy and how I think about it is it's not just trying to maximize whatever your long-term expected return is. It's also thinking about like the possible path and trajectory by which you get there, right? That if you're, you know, you have a down period or if it's in your flat period or whatever it is, and you need to withdraw funds at that time, you're not going to get the averages, right? Because you had inflows and outflows over that period. So yeah, again, <laughs> a long-winded thing, but I think that's, I think that's a really important concept that does have a lot of impact on how most people think about their investments that's not broadly understood. Okay. So how do you avoid that then? Because I think this connects to some of the other things we've talked about. We've talked about tail risks to an extent, you know, something that seems wildly unpredictable, but it can also happen. It's ergodic in the same way that you could have, I mean, the Russian roulette analogy is a perfect example. There's six bullets in the chamber. If you get the bullet on the first one, you don't get to live the rest of the five empty ones, right? And so the losses are irreversible. And in a similar way with careers, with a lot of different things in our lives, if you, okay, so you could say careers are non-ergodic in a sense where if you have a company that works their people really hard, grinds them to the bone, you could have a lot of people that potentially burn out. But the thing is the odds for the individual are not the same as the odds for the company. For the company, they are playing the ensemble. They have a hundred people and every single one of them is going to work however many hours and a few of them burn out, but they still get the rewards at the end of that. For the individual, each individual, they get the time series average where they actually have to work through every single hour and day after day. And the thing is, let's say you have X odds of burning out. If you burn out early on, that could irreversibly change your ability to work the rest of those hours. So you don't actually get to live the rest of that timeline. Applying that to investing, just like you did, if you take a big loss early on, even though the average result over time is different, you don't actually get to live the rest of that, that time period. So I'd love to know how you think about, because the thing is with tail risks, a lot of people don't necessarily want to hedge against them. Like if I said, oh, once in a hundred years, there's going to be a global pandemic. We just had one a couple of years ago. I'm going to think, hey, you know, <laughs> that gives me a good, you know, 97, 98 years. No need to worry. But the thing is, one in 100, that could actually be five years from now. And suddenly it's a very different picture. So how do you balance these two ideas? I like the company and employee thing. I think mean, between venture capitalists and like startup founders, and they're like the venture capitalist gets the ensemble return. So oftentimes they're incentivized to say, yeah, 
go big or go home, see if you can do this really good. Whereas the individual does not get, they get the return of their particular company's trajectory, right? And you think, well, maybe let's be a little bit more conservative and we'll take a path that's more likely to work, but maybe isn't as, as high. So I think, yeah, it is an interesting distinction as well with the company, right? But I think sort of like in the in the investing context, and I think it's actually, it's harder to talk about with an individual. In the investing, it's a little bit simpler that like the idea is just thinking more broadly about diversification is like basically the main way to think about it or thinking more realistically about sort of, you know, what to expect on the future. So like, again, I'll give like rough numbers here in the case of like, you know, say the average returns of stocks is, is 7%. Well, the 50th percentile is like 5%. And the 25th percentile is like 2% and average returns per year or compound annual growth rate. And so like, yeah, I guess it's like a bit unintuitive, but like the average is highly weighted by the very good outcomes, right? So you have some very, very strong period and those bring up the average, but like, you don't know where you're going to be in those periods. Like, are you going to be investing in that period? Or are you not? Is that period going to happen in your, in your lifetime sort of thing? And then you know, I think to your point about tail risk and sort of how do you think about the appropriate tail risk, like the number one way to be successful is to not die. The, the precondition for living is not experiencing death, both like literally and metaphorically. And so eliminating or severely reducing that possibility is very valuable because it allows you to continue to play the game, right? If you can like mitigate that sort of sequencing things. So I think that's where it gets, I think people get tripped up or it's not exactly intuitive. They're like, oh, this thing is very unlikely to happen, which may very well be true. But like if the impact is sufficiently negative, it's still extremely problematic to sort of what that long-term growth rate is. Okay. That makes sense. I've heard you mention before Herschel Walker syndrome. Could you explain that? Yeah. So Herschel Walker was a running back, American football player. He was most famous. He played for the Dallas Cowboys. He was like the great running back of the era of generation. And well, at a 1990, I'm trying to remember what year it was, he got traded to the Minnesota Vikings. And the trade is like now called the Great Train Robbery. And basically the Minnesota Vikings like gave up a ton to get, you know, I gave up like Four first round draft picks. I can't remember. Basically, they were saying, okay, Herschel Walker is the greatest player of all time of his generation. If we get Herschel Walker, we're going to win a Super Bowl. And that's sort of the, that's the number one thing. And Dallas was thinking about it much more from like a portfolio perspective. They're like, all right, we're giving up Herschel Walker, but we're getting four number one draft picks and all this stuff. And that was sort of like the peak of the Dallas Cowboys. I think they won three Super Bowls over like a five or six year period. And like a lot of the players from the Super Bowl teams were like the draft picks they got from the Herschel Walker trade. And I think a lot of people tend to think about investing in the same way that like the Minnesota Vikings talk about Herschel Walker. It's like, oh, I need to pick the best thing, right? I need to get the number one thing. It's going to do the very best, but like what really matters is like how the whole team plays together, right? It's how all the different things, all, all the assets in the portfolio interact, right? And so, you know, did the Dallas Cowboys get any players that were as good as Herschel Walker? Probably not, but in aggregate, they were better, right? And that's what the, so, you know, they could have all those players in the field and that was sort of the trade. So that that's my observation about, a lot of people tend to think of investing as like it's, I need to pick the winner or I need to pick the best thing. And they don't think about the overall portfolio and how all the pieces work together. So like coming back to our ergodicity and, and talking about sequencing risk, it's like sometimes it may be better to add a investment to a portfolio that doesn't have as good as strong returns, but is a diversifier against the rest of the portfolio, right? So tail risk stuff would be something that may, like, is it going to have the best long-term returns? Not necessarily, but 
that's not necessarily the point. The point is how does it interact with all the other elements in the portfolio? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How much does it make sense to hedge against these big risks? Because for example, okay, I can think of a few different models or a few different people have said things about this. You know, Charlie Munger said, okay, we, we don't try and be smart. We try and avoid being stupid. I think even in this conversation, we talked about the idea of the best way to survive is not to die. So if you want to be able to live long and benefit from all the experiments you could take, you have to avoid being completely wiped out. I had Luca Delana on the pod a little while back, and he talks about a similar idea where, you know, again, instead of trying to win, you try not to lose. I think he used the example of Elon Musk, where Elon Musk has survived going bankrupt so many times that if you imagined all the other alternate universes where Elon Musk exists, He's probably broke in quite a few of them. <laughs> and actually, we, we are living in the one universe where Elon Musk gets to be the richest person in the world simply because he's taken so much risk. And actually, it might be better to optimize for, you know, I think the model Luca uses is how could I create a situation so that in the maximum number of alternate worlds, I am equally happy. And so I am kind of like, cruising along at an equal pace in, in multiple universes. And so I'm not taking on too much risk that I could be wiped out, which means I don't get to benefit from future attempts. However, going back to what we discussed earlier, there is such a thing potentially as playing it too safe and not taking enough risk. And actually, if you don't take any risks or you take risks too infrequently, you're not used to risks when they arise. And so the big risks that you do feel are so much more painful because of that. So how do you think of the balance there, both in investing and in life in general of balancing, okay, we need to build some muscles of learning to take risks, but then also you don't want to take so much risk that you could be potentially wiped out. Yeah. I, like the exercise example you gave, like jumping off a wall is nice, right? Like you want more moderate stressors or more moderate risk and less significant tail risk, right? So like, I think someone's like running a small business or working small business, you have a lot more moderate risk. This client doesn't pay, this thing doesn't happen, but you're a little bit more in control of your destiny, right? Like you're sort of like directly interfacing with the market. So you don't want to eliminate risk is that you want to eliminate the very, very big risk and you want to take more of the appropriate medium-term risk. So like uh, one of the concepts I had in the end of jobs is this idea of like stair-stepping in your career that like you want to try and do something that's like reasonably adjacent to your skill set as opposed to like, you know, oh, I'm going to leave my corporate law job and I'm going to go do like an AI startup where I have no experience in AI and whatever, right? Like that's a lot harder than like, I'm going to leave my whatever job and I'm going to do something that's like reasonably adjacent to it where like my existing network and skills or whatever are somewhat transferable and do it right. Like it's still a risk, but it's not like I'm going to start from scratch kind of thing. So that tends to be the way I think about it career-wise. So from your time running the Mutiny Fund, is there anything that you've learned from your time as an investor that you can apply to the rest of your life in terms of whether it's the level of risk you undertake or the way that you approach starting certain projects? You know, Has that changed the way that you think about any other aspects of life? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I think like I do think about the ergodicity stuff a lot and like the path dependency stuff a lot more. I'm not sure I have like any like great concrete examples other than just like those things tend to be on my mind a lot more when I'm like thinking about particular decisions, like what is the sort of like trajectory or, or the path here? I'm a big fan of Lucas' work that same way of like, okay, across multiple universes, like how do I maximize the probability, maximize the number of them in which things work out pretty good. I think that's maybe one shift in my thinking as a result of it. And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that that's the main thing that comes to mind. 
Okay, fair. Just because it came to my mind from what you said, could you explain the Helsinki bus station theory? Oh yeah, no, I would love to. I think it was a commencement address at a um, a photography school, an arts and design school. So the Helsinki bus station, the way the bus tracks are designed, is there's sort of a central station, and I've actually never been to the Helsinki bus station, but this is how it goes in the story at least. And all the bus routes start leaving along the same path. You know, they're leaving the main road out of the bus, and you can think of each of these stops as like a year in your career. And so everyone, whatever it's done with high school, graduate from university. And like, you kind of start off on the same trajectory, right? And you get, you know, oftentimes you'll get a year or two in and you'll look around and you'll say, I'm kind of doing the same thing everyone else is doing. You know, you're an artist, you're looking around at your work and you're going, oh, this is derivative, right? I'm doing this, like I'm copying some other artist that I like, right? I'm doing some sort of copy derivative thing. And what a lot of people do is they get off the bus and they go back to the bus station and they get on another bus. And then you go two or three stops and you look around and you get in the same scenario. Everyone else is at this bus stop. Everything's going different. Everything looks the same. And so I'm going to go back to the bus station. And so the Helsinki bus station theory is you stay on the bus because the further the bus gets out from the bus station, you know, the paths start to diverge, right? And you're sort of, you know, in the context of like, if you're an artist, you're doing photography, right? Your work starts to evolve. It starts to get unique. You start to develop your own sense of taste. First, it's maybe a blend of two or three artists that you admire. And like now you've taken that, you've incorporated and you've done something slightly different, like in the same in your context of your career. Like I think, you know, most people three to five years in their career, like, I don't know how much novel stuff are they doing? Like, probably not that much. I mean, there's research on this as well. Like I think there's some like basically sort of like average age of like Nobel Prize winners. And like I think it's usually like 12 to 15 years into their career or something like that. Or there's something like that. Like it takes them a while to get to the edge of whatever they're working on, right? Like the third year PhD student is usually not doing something groundbreaking. They're doing something derivative, just like getting them closer to sort of the frontier of their field. So like, I guess coming back to like our compass and our gyroscope, it's like, what is that sort of gyroscope down the bus path look like? And sort of how do you stay on the bus of like, how can you take what you've already got, the skills, the assets, the relationships, all those sorts of things and weave them into the next thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just the last thing you were saying made me think of what you talk about also in your book, which is this idea of apprenticeships. And because, okay, you mentioned the Nobel Prize winners, you might also know that a disproportionate number of Nobel Prize winners worked for or with other Nobel Prize winners. And you can find some, you know, almost like factories, unintentional factories, where there are two or three different Nobel Prize winners that all worked at one point within the same university working with one particular person that person themselves may not even have a Nobel Prize but at least there was a starting point where all of them kind of diverged from and I think that's also a, another underrated aspect of life building or career building which is just kind of learning from other people as well very much yeah Kevin Kelly he has a term he uses called the seniest that I like you see this in history a lot that like how creativity emerges in certain groups so uh, you know like Paris in the 20s or the Vienna Circle. Someone was telling me about this, like this is an AI thing. Like a lot of the, the most for AI people were the same. They were like, there was like two labs 10 years ago, right? There was like two people that a lot of them are working for that like that was sort of the promising approach that they all came out of. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please do stay tuned for more. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast. And follow me on Twitter. Feel free to shoot me any thoughts. See you next time.